Let's dig into the word. How about that? You guys good with that? I used to work in LA and it was always like, amen, preach it, brother. You know, it was always great. So um, Matthew 19, here we go. Uh, So let me pray for us um, and then we'll get started. Father, thank you for opportunity to be in the word. Thank you for opportunity that we have as a church to gather this morning, um, though it may not be the most, most comfortable uh, though it may be uh, annoying at times, even uh, with the separation or the face masks or all the things that we're trying to do to, to, uh, to, to protect one another and care for one another. And God, I pray that you would help remove all the distractions, all these things away. And God, help us to focus in on you. Uh, Jesus, we, we come to, to study your word, not to just gain some new information or insights. Uh, God, we come to see you. We come to worship you. We come to walk out of this place uh, in awe of who you are and what you've done for us so that, God, we can be on mission, so we can tell people about you, so we can build those relationships with people who do not know you. Um, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, Matthew 19, as was read, verses 16 through 30. Uh, now, none of us like uh, interference, okay? Interference, unless, of course, you are the uh, Jacksonville Jaguars football team you love interfering with receivers. Um, having led the league this year in over 20 pass interference plays, um, I will do you a favor and not talk about defensive offsides or anything like that that may have happened yesterday. Just we'll leave that alone. Um, but personally, we don't like being interfered, right? We don't like the interference. Uh, if you, uh, you think about, uh, just think about your phones. You know, you get in those places where you're on a phone call and you're driving somewhere and there's not good reception and the call drops, right? We get annoyed by that interference. Uh, we think of as uh, as parents, and I know mine are older now, but when they were little, having little ones, you know, you're trying to have that adult conversation with somebody, and uh, and the kids kind of rally together, and they send one kid to run interference, right, to get to get their attention, your attention back on them and away from the adult conversation that you're in. We, we don't enjoy interference. But how many of us have understood God to be an interferer, right? If you were a Christian... You, you probably know what I'm talking about, right? You've experienced this. Uh, there was a time in your life where you were living for yourself, following your own kind of whims and desires. You, you had a plan. You were executing that plan. You had it all laid out. And all of a sudden, out of nowhere, it seems, God interfered. God stepped into your life. He stepped into your kitchen. He shook things up and turned you around. And now you're on a different path. You're going a, a whole different direction, Our conversion stories are really stories of God interfering in our life. I remember this as as an 18-year-old kid uh, running as hard as I could uh, from God, though not even being sure if God even existed at that moment in my life. Uh, I look back on my story, and I can see traces of God's interference, not knowing at the time it was him, but realizing, looking back in my story, realizing, yeah, he was was running a lot of interference uh, in my life. I was frustrated with things. Uh, not going the way I wanted, but I realized now that, um, that, that, that God was running the interference. He was pulling things out of my life that I so desperately wanted to lean on uh, for life, so many things I wanted to, to have that would bring, I thought, joy, satisfaction, things I wanted to build my life on, and God was pulling those things out of my life lovingly because he knew that they would destroy me. The Bible has a word for that. It's called, it's called sin. Another word for that is called idolatry. And, and, and idolatry is not the, uh, the stones and the sculptures that ancient people bow down to. I'm not necessarily talking about that. I'm talking about something inside the heart, right? It's, a, the, it's, um, 
could be defined as anything or anyone who takes the kind of the throne of your heart and reigns supreme. Anything or anyone that kind of reigns as, uh, as supreme in your heart. C.S. Lewis, one of my, my favorite writers, um, had this experience similar uh, in terms of how God interfered with him and brought him to himself. And listen to this. He said, he said, but of course, what mattered most of all was my deep-seated hatred of authority, my monstrous individualism, my lawlessness. He said, no word in my vocabulary expressed deeper hatred than the word interference. But Christianity placed at the center what then seemed to me a transcendental interferer. If, 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 it's, if its picture were true, then no sort of treaty with reality could ever be possible. There was no region, even in the inmost depth of one's soul, which one could surround with a barbed wire fence and guard with a notice, no admittance. And that was what I wanted. Some area, however small, of which I could say to all other beings, this is my business and mine alone. And he realized God broke through all of those fences. <laughs> like, I couldn't keep him away. At the core of the gospel story is a God who interferes, a God who lovingly doesn't let the human race run headlong into sin and hell, but rather invades our reality by becoming a man, taking on human flesh, and dying for us, for our sin. And today, because he is alive, he dispatches the divine interferer called the Holy Spirit um, to run interference on us. The Holy Spirit is like one of the greatest quarterbacks like in football, right? You can't outrun him. You can't juke him. You can't block him. He is just relentlessly interfering with our lives, and we should be thankful for that. Today in our passage, we're going to look at this. We're going to look at Jesus as a, a great interferer in the life of a young man. This young man, you may have, may have heard this story before, sometimes referred to as the rich young ruler. Uh, he is a young man who had it all in life, right? He seemed to have it all, um, and Jesus is going to kind of shake him to his core to help him see the value, worth, and supremacy of Jesus himself. Uh, my prayer is that the Holy Spirit would interfere with you as well this morning. Uh, I pray you don't get annoyed, but rather learn to repent of the things that are capturing maybe your affections, your attention, um, and getting them away from Jesus. And here's what we're going to look at this morning. We're going to look at what I call the universal doubt. We're going to look at the, the, the unavoidable problem, and then we're going to look at the unrelenting God, okay? So number one, the universal doubt. Beginning in verse 16, now in your Bibles, you can see this. It says, behold, a man came up to him saying, teacher, what good deed must I do to inherit or to, to have eternal life? Now, this is, this is interesting to me. Uh, this guy seems, again, to have everything as we hear his story. According to the other accounts, right, this is the gospel of Matthew. There are things we call gospels. There's Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and they all speak about the life of Jesus. And in the other accounts of, of Mark and Luke, we find out that this guy was rich. We find out that he was, he was young, and we find out that he was also had power, he had authority. We also know him to be, according to his own account here, at least in his perspective, to be a, a good guy, right? He's a good guy. He's, a, he's popular with the people. I would say in today's day and age, if he, were, if he had an account on Twitter or Instagram or TikTok today, he'd have the blue check mark next to his name. He was, he was uh, authentic, uh, verified, right? He had millions of followers. Everyone knew this guy. And yet, we find him in our story coming to now what most people think at the time. Now, I know we have our ideas and our understanding of Jesus, but what most of them thought at the time or believed about him was just 
It's a Jewish carpenter's son, maybe a, a rabbi, you know, a good teacher kind of guy, but not, most didn't think of him as necessarily God. They didn't understand that or even, even be who he was. And here he is coming to this guy asking about life, which should be interesting. Why him? Why is he coming to him? There's something about him, about Jesus that brings him. And this question, this is the question of, of every soul. What is, what is life? Where is it found? What is it, where is eternal life? We may not articulate it as a search for eternal life, but every human is searching for just that. It's the question of where is life found? Can you not see through that though this man had everything the world had to offer, he's essentially still lifeless? He even thinks he knows the answer to his own question by answering with a blameless record of morality. And we'll see that in a moment. And even though he he has convinced himself he is a good, moral person, he still feels that there's something missing, right? Something's missing. To use, uh, Jared would appreciate this, you two here, this is, uh, still haven't found what I'm looking for, right? I mean, he's still searching, still hasn't found it, and he knows it intuitively, there's something deep inside missing. And this is why I call this the, the universal doubt, okay? Universal doubt. Every human being um, has this at the bottom of their soul. Everyone knows, no matter, no matter what, what they have done that is good, no matter how much they have attained in life, no matter how many friends or accolades that they have gathered, there's still, there's still something, just can't quite put my finger on it, but there's something that is missing. Even a satisfying relationship still keeps one doubting. Even when one kind of feels settled, it feels like, okay, I'm in my rhythm here, I got it, I feel content, but even in that contentment in the middle of the night, there's still this thought that something's not right. Wallace Stevens, a poet, even said this, just commenting on his own life. He said, even in contentment, I feel the need for some imperishable bliss. He said, even when I feel settled, even when I feel good, and this this wasn't a believer, he's just like, even when I I feel like I've got it and I'm on top of the world, as it were, I still feel this need for some imperishable bliss, something that will last beyond life. In other words, when I experience contentment, Right, from something temporary or something perishable, which is all on earth, it awakens something in my soul, a desire for ultimate contentment, a feeling that ultimately satisfies, not just for a short while, but something that is forever. There's a thought uh, deep in all of our souls that even when things are great, that one day, one day it's going to come to an end. Some would say that that's just kind of being pessimistic, you know, you're just kind of being pessimistic. You should live for the moment. Uh, don't think about all that stuff. And while, while that may be a case that maybe animals can do that, human beings made in the image of God, we can't do that. We can't escape that thought. Uh, we can't turn off the switch of this universal doubt. As a human being, I think, I reason, I ponder, I consider, I can't escape the thought. Uh, and at some point, because the lights will go off, right? When the, when the lights go off, when the, when the music stops, when the people leave, there's just me and my thoughts, right? Everything is going to be taken away one day because there is this thing called death that we've seen. We try to pacify the thought of death by busying ourselves, throwing ourselves into endless cycles of pursuit. We, we try to act as if it, death doesn't exist or it, it won't happen or it's so far off, I don't have to think about it, it won't reach us but it will. And everything we have put our energy energy into, everything we have poured our time and money and resources into to try to keep us from it, it won't help us. 
So because we have this universal doubt, we have the feelings, these feelings that keep emerging, these feelings of guilt. Maybe you feel that this morning, right? Feelings of shame, feelings of fear. We keep looking over our shoulder um, at, the, at the things we possess that we, we thought were life-giving. We're, we're afraid that what, what we have maybe isn't enough. We feel shame that we have focused so much attention on our own personal pursuits and neglect of others. We feel guilty knowing deep down we are selfish and that we've kind of missed the mark in some form. So it continues the endless pursuit of the question, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? And we feel like a hamster in the wheel of life, always moving, always going, always working, but not quite getting anywhere when we really think about it. We become like uh, Rocky. You guys, this will date me back a little bit here, but Rocky, right, the boxer. You know, he was talking to Adrian. She was trying to keep him from uh, getting in the ring because she was sure he was going to die in the ring. And he, his answer to her was, she asked him, why are you going to do this? And he says, I want to go all the way so that I know I'm not a bum. I want to go all the way so I know I'm not a bum. I've got to defeat this. I've got to keep going. Even if it kills me, I've got to know that I'm not a bum. And so there's this continued pursuit to go, I'm going to keep going so I know I'm not a bum. It's as if we all walk around, no way of putting this, it's like we all walk around this cold kind of freezing world and we see this barrel of fire over there. And what the Bible says, instead of, instead of going over to that barrel of fire and warming ourselves at that barrel of fire, we instead stand in the shadows right? We, we rub our hands together. We blow into them. We're kind of jumping around, trying to, trying to do anything to keep ourselves warm over in the shadows when there's a, there's a barrel of fire sitting over there, right? And the answer, the Bible says that that barrel of fire, that's God, but yet we refuse to go to it, and we try everything we can in this world to stay warm, right? That's what the Bible means as sin. That's what it talks about as idolatry, and that's what we get to in the next part here in verse 17. Here's the unavoidable problem, beginning in verse 17. He said to him, why do you, this is Jesus, why do you ask what's good? There's only one who is good, and if you would enter life, keep the commandments. Hmm. He said to him, well, which ones? That's kind of a bold question. Well, give me the list, Jesus. And Jesus says, okay, well, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, honor your father and mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. How about that? How, do you, how are you doing on that list? <laughs> And this is interesting because in, this is Matthew's account and, and Luke's account. It actually says that the guy refers to Jesus as, he doesn't just ask who's good. He actually asks, he refers to Jesus as a good teacher. And interesting enough, Jesus actually rebukes him, which may be interesting. You're like, well, isn't Jesus a good teacher? Like, why would Jesus say, don't, don't call me good teacher? And Jesus is not saying that he's not good. And he's not saying that he's not a teacher. He, he doesn't say to, to this guy, hey, why... Why are you calling me good? I, Jesus, I am not good. He doesn't say that at all. He is saying to him, why? He's trying to get to him, right? He's saying, why are you walking up to somebody you think is apparently just a normal human being, someone maybe is a teacher, a good teacher, and why are you calling him good? In other words, what Jesus is saying to this guy, there's a, there's a flaw in your whole idea of, of what's good and what's bad. This guy thinks Jesus is good because, hey, it looks like you, you may have found it here. Help me out. What, what secret do you have? Um, this guy thinks that life is found in accomplishments and, and deeds, and hence his whole question of what must I do? Apparently, I'm not doing the right things. What things must I do, Jesus? And you say, well, this guy's problem is that he's a liar, right? That's his problem. He's totally full of himself. He's lying. Clearly, I mean, he didn't keep the commandments. Jesus, I mean, you, you've, we've seen this in the Gospels. Chris, you, you've said, like, everybody's a sinner. Romans 3 says, all fall short of the glory of God. So this guy's problem is he's, he's delusional. Right? He's just a liar. 
But it's interesting that Jesus doesn't call him a liar. Okay? It doesn't mean he's not. I'm not saying that he's telling the truth here, but that's not the point Jesus is going after. This young man really believes. He, he, he really believes that he has done everything right. And notice Jesus doesn't even call him out as being greedy either. Jesus goes after his heart in a very brilliant way. Look how he does this. Verse 20. The young man said to him, all these I have kept. What do I still lack? And Jesus said to him, if you would be perfect, why don't you go and sell what you possess and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come um, be with me. Notice that even in his response to this, I think this is fascinating to Jesus, he realizes that something is still wrong. Yeah, I, you asked for the list. Jesus gave him the list. He goes, thumbs up, check, check, check. I've got it. I've done it, done all those. But what else is there? Do you hear it? You hear it in this question? Like he's, he still feels something's missing. And that's why he says, what do I still lack? And without being, a, being able to put it into words, he knew that his life, there was something defective about it. And he was looking to Jesus to show him to make, what is, make it right. So why does Jesus tell him to sell all he has and give to the poor? That may be a little disturbing to you as you read that, going like, is that, is that really the answer? Why does Jesus tell him to sell everything he has and give to the poor? Does, this, does Jesus mean that salvation, life, eternal life, like is found in poverty? Or maybe it's found in giving alms and giving to the poor? Is that, is that the solution to life? And that would understand, that would go against everything we have read so far in the Gospel of Matthew. That is not in any way what Jesus is saying. What he's going after is, again, he's, a, he's God. He's brilliant, brilliant teacher. And what he's going after here, notice what commandment he didn't list. He didn't list commandment number one. He didn't list commandment number one. You, remember what, you know what number one is? You shall have no other God before me, right? He didn't ask that one. Notice it was missing from the list as Jesus uh, really deals with the commandments five through 10. He deals with the ones that are human related while commandments one through four are kind of more God related. And it's the, and it, and it, the reason that number one, you shall have no other God before me may seem like when you skip over and get to the important commandments. The reason that's number one, it's number one for a reason. It's because you never break, this is very important for you to understand this, you never break commandments two through 10. You never break any commandments without breaking number one first. You shall have no other God before me. It is, it is the heart, it is the reason that all the others are broken, okay? It's the ultimate reason that human beings lie. It's the ultimate reason we steal, cheat, and even murder. Is because at our core, we have put something, someone elevated above God himself, and that treasure in our soul has driven us to then, I gotta lie to protect it. I gotta steal to protect it. I, I, I gotta have her, right? And so I got to have him. So I, I, the adultery happens, right? It's all because of this treasure that we've put the center of our soul. Something before God, our creator is made supreme. And understand that this young man is religious to the core, but in his religiosity, he missed, I would say he missed the forest for the tree. He missed the very first commandment. And this may be strange. You may have never heard this before. He needed to not just repent of his badness. He needed to repent of his goodness. You're saying, what? What are you talking about? Repent of your goodness. He was using his goodness as a, as a shield. He was, he was leaning on his goodness to earn him points with God. And he not just repent. He thought, well, if I didn't do anything bad, quote unquote, then I must be good. And it's like, no, Jesus is like, you need to repent of even what's, what you do, it's good. Because you're using what, you're, what you do good to be self-righteous to be a, a means of your own salvation. And that is really what idolatry is. Idolatry is usually, at the core of our souls, idolatry is usually a good thing. Not, it's not usually a bad thing. It's usually a good thing that we make an ultimate thing, right? It's usually a good thing 
that is perfectly okay to have or want, that we make an ultimate thing. I have to have it. I have to keep it. You see? And, and that's what drives us. That becomes that God, and that drives us to commit all kinds of evil in the world. So what does, uh, what does Jesus discern is the thing this man, this man, maybe his specific situation, is using to cover up his blemishes, as it were, using to cover up his faults? Because we all use something, some kind of shield, something we build our life on. What does Jesus discern is the thing this man hides behind? This thing that this man props up as his own righteousness and really is a way to avoid God. What does he use? Answer, his money, his stuff. <laughs> and, and this is why Jesus tells him. This, why, this is why Jesus tells him to sell it all. Hey, why don't you go sell all that? And he goes, oh, wait a minute. No, I don't want to do that. <laughs> it's not that he was saying that's the solution to every human soul is to sell everything you have. He's going right after this guy because that is the piece that he was holding up as his life. And so he understands this. To, to do that to this guy would, would, make him, uh, would make him laid bare and exposed with nothing to shield him from God, nothing to assuage his guilty conscience, nothing to give him an identity, and nothing to prevent him from being that, as Rocky said, a bum, right? My money keeps me from being a bum. I, I feel good because I have money. Money possessions made him feel that he wasn't lost. He wasn't missing the mark. Also, consider that it's not that he necessarily gained his money through wicked way, because some, sometimes people say, oh, because he was greedy and all that, and the money was, was, was bad. The text doesn't give us any indication that he was greedy necessarily. He probably was, but it doesn't say that. The money itself, understand, is not evil, right? It's, it's the loving of money. It's the using it to avoid Jesus. It's using it to build your life upon and build as a, as a, as a treasure of your heart is the problem, in short, his money had become his God. Money was the center of his identity. To lose his money in his world would have been to lose himself. That's why the text will go on to tell us he walked away depressed. It's like, I can't do that. Because to do that would lose what little sense he had of covering the stain. What little sense he had to, to lose that would be to re, re, lose the remaining fig leaves, as it were, to cover himself. In essence, Jesus is saying, I want you to imagine, here's what he's saying in his question to this guy, I want you to imagine life without money. I want you to imagine it all gone. No inheritance, no inventory, right? No servants, no mansions, all gone. And then you just have me. Are you okay with that? That's what he's getting to with these questions. Imagine it's all gone and you just have me. Are you good with that piece? What do you say to Jesus' question? Can you live without anything but Jesus? It may not be money in your case. It may be, right? It, it, may be, it may be sex. It may be power. It may be fame. It may be relationships. It may even be your own family that you're, you're holding on to. But at the core of every soul, there is something we're leaning on to save us, something to give us life, something to give us identity. And if it isn't God, it's what the Bible calls idolatry, and it's the unavoidable problem that we all face because the Bible says we are sinners, and that's what it is. Now, it's an easy question to answer yes to. You're like, oh, yeah, I'm good with anything but Jesus. That's why I'm here this morning, Chris. I'm at church. I mean, anything but Jesus, yeah, that's, that's me. I'd sign me up. I'm, I'm on board. I like the way John Piper put it this way. This is a great, just a great question. Listen to this. He said, the critical question for our generation, and really for every generation, is this. And this is self-evaluation here. If you could have heaven with no sickness, with all the friends you had on earth, all the food you ever liked, all the leisure activities you ever enjoyed, and all the natural beauty you ever saw, all the physical pleasures you ever tasted, and no human conflict or, or any natural disasters 
Could you be satisfied with heaven if Christ wasn't there? That's a tough question. Because you read that list, you go, yeah, I want all those things. But do you want Jesus? Because, my friends, that's, that's what heaven's all about. <laughs> that's what eternal life is all about. That's what he's going after with this guy and what he's going after with us. Now, now, some would say Jesus is being a little harsh here, a little too hard on this guy, maybe too hard on us. But understand, Jesus is going after this guy's heart, just like he does with us. When he asked a few in the other parts of the Gospels and early on in Matthew, when he asked a few fishermen to follow him, right, he was asking them to, to make him the center, leave everything behind. Matthew 4, 18 through 19, he says he was walking by the Sea of Galilee. He saw two brothers, Simon called Peter, Andrew his brother, casting them into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, follow me. And the account goes on to say they, they left their nets behind and they followed Jesus. They understood what he meant by that. There's another account of Matthew himself, the guy who, who, who helped write this and who actually wrote this gospel account through eyewitness accounts. And, uh, and he's in a tax booth. He's a tax collector. And here's what it says. Jesus came to him, passed by, Matthew 9, 9. He saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me. And what did Matthew do? The account goes on. He left his money in his tax booth behind, and he followed Jesus. They understood that Jesus was going after something they may have been fishermen leaning on their business and on their fishing enterprise. They may have been a tax collector leaning on his money and his position of power. But when Jesus said, follow me, they understood that to mean you now take supreme importance over everything else. They did not have the riches of this young man, it would seem, but they left what they treasured. They followed Jesus. They were prepared, if needed, to sacrifice anything to follow Jesus. They were willing to jettison anything and everything that got in the way of following Jesus. John Broadus was a, a pastor here in the United States uh, during the 19, late 19th century. He said this, the, the test of, of this is different for different people. Some find it harder to renounce hopes of worldly honor and fame for Christ's sake than to renounce, say, wealth. For others, the hard trial is to abandon certain gratifications of the various appetites or taste. He says, Abraham left his native country as, of, at God's command. Moses gave up the distinction and refined pleasures of court life. Elisha left his property at the call of God uh, through Elijah. Paul abandoned his, his ambitious hope of being a great rabbi. All should be willing even to die for Christ, though not many are actually required to do so. Right? So that's what, that's what Jesus is going after. He's going after with us. What's at the core of our being? What are we treasuring? What is there? Look at verse 22 now in this passage. When the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. You know what's interesting about the word sorrowful, okay? The, um, that word used later in the Gospel of Matthew actually is used in a place called, we call it the Garden of Gethsemane. It's where Jesus was praying before, uh, before he was arrested and the disciples left him. And if, you, if you're familiar with that account, it says he was in great anguish, sweating drops of blood. The word great anguish later on in the Gospel of Matthew, same word used for this guy. Same word, in great anguish. It's like he's sweating drops of blood when Jesus says this. He, it, it's, it's, it's tearing at his soul. He realizes what he must do and can't. This young man can't see past the things money provided him and trust Jesus for that. Things You say, what was he trusting him? Well, he trusted him money to bring him security maybe. Maybe it was bring him uh, hope, bring him, maybe even independence, right? When money assumes a, a God-like status in our life, it does give us this false sense of independence, meaning I don't need God or anybody else. I'm good. I've got money. I can lean on that. If everything falls apart, well, I've got a savings account, right? We tend to think uh, that money will solve our problems, 
and allow us to deal with any situation that arises. And we think it can buy us maybe happiness, it can ward off sorrow, we think it can eliminate maybe our need for God, and this man was not willing to have Jesus be those things for him. He was leaning on money to be those things. You can insert whatever you want in that, but that's what he was leaning on. He sadly felt that money eliminated the need for God, and so he left walking into the shadows with this universal doubt still, right? This unavoidable problem. There's been a lot of coverage uh, in recent years over uh, this billionaire named Robert Durst. Maybe you've kept up with the story over the last five or six years. Uh, he was, uh, made, was made especially popular when there was a, a documentary called The Jinx in 2015 came out. Uh, the, for three decades, this guy uh, had been part of multiple murders, and he got off the hook because he had a lot of money, and he paid some really good lawyers to get him out, off of it, and he kind of got, uh, kind of went to his head. In the last moments of this, this documentary called The Jinx, where he's being interviewed, and it kind of become pretty arrogant, he is filmed at one point towards the end, walking away uh, to go to the bathroom, microphone still on. Always be careful of that, by the way, <laughs> okay? He's walking to the bathroom, microphone still on, and he's heard whispering to himself, talking to himself almost like Gollum in Lord of the Rings. And he says this, what did I do? I killed all of them, that's what he said. He went on further, he said this, ah, but it's so long ago. Some DA would have to commence a budget-busting investigation, and I don't see that happening, so I'm good, right? But money won't buy him freedom from God. Money won't, won't cure the universal doubt of this man's soul or any of our souls, Listen to some passages from some scriptures. Zephaniah said this in the Old Testament, neither their silver nor their gold shall be able to deliver them on the day of the wrath of the Lord. You can't pay God off. Ecclesiastes 5.10, he who loves money will not be satisfied with money. That's a great verse to memorize, by the way. Let me say that again. He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This also is vanity. Psalm 49.10, for he sees that even the wise die, the fool, the stupid alike, must perish and leave their wealth to others. And then New Testament, Paul said in 1 Timothy 6.10, for the love of money, not money itself, but the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. It's through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many, many pains here. So we look at this, and we realize, again, it's not the, the number of dollar, pill, dollar bills that people are, that are, are driven after that, that is the, the reason, but what, what's, what it stands for. It's not the dollar bills. It's what it stands for for people's life, right? Security, comfort, approval, power, hope, independence, whatever it may be, it's what the dollar bills stand for. And you may say to yourself, you know what, Christopher, that's good for him, but that's not me. I'm not greedy, right? I'm not a greedy person. Money's not an idol to me. We can move on. I would like to press it on that one for a moment, <laughs> Let me ask you, what do you think about people who have more money than you and possessions than you? What do you, what do you think about them? Are they better off in your, in your idea? Are they, are they more secure in your idea? Are they, do they live a better life because of that? Do you, do you think that if only you had what they had, then man, life would be good. Life would be much easier if I just had what they had. All right, don't fool yourself into thinking that you just, you know, if you had more money, you know what I would do? I just would give it all away. Maybe. Probably not. <laughs> I can say this. If you don't give anything away now, okay, you get a lot more, you're not going to get rid of anything then either. There was a story some years ago, uh, 2005, Washington Post article. This was, uh, it was, the title of it was called Rich Man, Poor Man. Jack Whitaker's big Powerball win cost him and everyone around him dearly. That was the title of the story. He won, get this, $314 million undivided, all his. 
It was the biggest, at that point, the biggest jackpot in history. And here's what he said when he won the money. He said, quote, I want to be a good example. I want to make people proud of what happens with this winning. I want to promote goodwill, and I want to help people. I mean, we would all think that, yeah, that's what I would do if I got it. He was determined, and he, he said at the time that he was going to live as if nothing ever changed. He talked about, he said, I'm going I'm to keep answering my own phone. I'm going to keep opening my own doors. I'm going I'm to look to God for guidance, he said. He vowed to give away most of his earnings. But people started coming around him asking for money, right? They got to know who he was. They started uh, threatening him even at times. His daughter, writing in the article, began to describe and said he started drinking a lot. Next thing you know, she said, he started getting prostitutes. You're like, what? His daughter said this. She said, quote, he would come home in a sloppy shirt, all wrinkled. His hat would be dirty, unshaven. And he became demanding, she said. At first, he was like, I'm Jack Whitaker. I want all this money. Yay for me. Misty said, uh, the daughter said, later, it was like, I'm Jack Whitaker. You'll do what I say. I have more money than God. Wow, that changed. He, she said, who, who talks like that? The daughter said, it was, like, it was like the money was eating away at whatever was good in him. She said, it, was, it reminds me of that, that Lord of the Rings little guy. What was his name? Gollum with his precious He's like, it just, it just consumes you. You become the money. You no longer become a person. So she observed, right? It all ate away at him. You say, how, you say, how do we know that if money has assumed a godlike status in our life, like this rich young ruler, how do we know if Jesus posed that question to us that we would, be on, we would answer that correctly and our hearts would be in the right place? There's a guy, Phil Riken, who, who gave a good checklist. These are really good questions. I just want to throw them out to you to evaluate your own soul. He gave this checklist to see if, uh, if we've allowed money, the love of money, to sit at the throne of our hearts. He said this, he said, when we are anxious about our finances, not trusting God to provide for our needs today or tomorrow, we're in love with money and the power that it, that it, to make us feel more secure. He said, when our lives are so full of work that we have to say no to helping others, we're probably in love with money and have given it mastery over our schedule. He said, when we find our thoughts returning again and again to something we are hoping to buy, we are in love with money and its power to get us what we think we want and think we need. He said, when we make employment decisions that are spiritually unwise for us and our family, he says, we are in love with money and our plans of getting more of it. When we find ourselves, he says, wishing we had some material possession that God has given to someone else, we're in love with money and the status, the convenience, or pleasure it seems to bring. He goes on, he says, gives two more. He says, when we spend more time complaining, this is a tough one, when we spend more time complaining about what we do not have rather than rejoicing in what we do have, we're in love with money and depend on it and our possessions rather than on God to give us contentment and joy. He says, when it, when it seems difficult or even impossible to give up something we want in order to make a sacrificial gift to help someone in need, we are probably more in love with money than we are with the gospel and what it can do to change people in the world. Those are good diagnostic kind of things, aren't they, to think about? Let's get to the last point, the unrelenting God. This is where we get to the good news. This is where we get to Jesus. Look at verse 23. Jesus now turns to his disciples. This guy's walked off into shadows. He's gone. He turns to his disciples, begins to speak to him. He says, truly I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich man, a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. It's easier for a camel to go through an eye of a needle than a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, some people, I read this in all these commentaries and people debating over what Jesus meant by this which I think is kind of silly because I think it's pretty simple what he meant by it, but they came up with a couple explanations, right? Some said like, well, what Jesus is talking about was a small gate 
and a camel could only squeeze through if it got on its knees type of situation. Others talked about it actually wasn't a camel. The word really isn't a camel. It actually refers to a rope or a cord or a cable that's used to squeeze through a small hole. Um, but the point Jesus is making, almost humorously uh, making actually, is like, it's like he's standing there with him and goes, hey, you see that camel over there? You see this needle right here? <laughs> you see the head of that needle right there? It's easier for that camel to squeeze through this needle right here than it is for a rich person to get into heaven. You're like, I think most everybody got the point. Yeah, that's going to be impossible, right? That's just not going to happen. And what Jesus is communicating here is, is that very point, that it is impossible on your own to rid yourself, be it the idol of money or idol of whatever else, to rip it out of your own soul, pick yourself up by your own bootstraps and fix this on your own. It's impossible, he says. The unavoidable problem needed divine intervention. For all human activity was limited, God was not. That's why he says in verse 25, he goes on, they ask who then can be saved? Because they get it. They're like, what are we going to do? And he looked at Jesus, looked at them, verse 26, with man it's impossible, with God all things are possible. And I love their response. It says they were greatly astonished. The, the original language, the Greek word there is the, the word to, to strike out of one's senses. Is the word. They were struck out of their senses. We, we may use the, uh, the, the, the phrase like their eyeballs popped out of their head. You know, they're like, what? You know, their eyes got big. It's kind of the idea. They thought in their world, having riches meant you were blessed by God. And if someone was blessed by God, can't enter, can enter the kingdom of heaven, then what hope in the world do they have? They understood that Jesus was communicating impossibility. It's actually very similar to a conversation the Gospel of John Jesus has with another guy. Remember, remember him in John 3. His name was Nicodemus. He was also be considered a rich, young ruler. And he also comes to Jesus in the middle of the night by a campfire, sneaking around in the dark. Didn't want people to see him come to Jesus to ask a very similar question. And Jesus answered Nicodemus, and where's life found, is that you've got to be born again. You remember, you remember the story Nicodemus is like, um... That ain't happening. <laughs> like, I, don't, I, I can't physically do that. That's, that's not possible. That's exactly what Jesus is saying with the camel through the eye of a needle. Same thing. And he was talking at the time. Jesus tells him he must be born of water and spirit. Like, what is that? It's from the Old Testament. Listen to this. Ezekiel 18.30. Read this for what it says. Just listen. Therefore, I will judge you, O house of Israel. This is God speaking. Everyone according to his ways, declares the Lord God. Repent. Turn from all your transgressions. That's sin. Lest iniquity be your ruin. Cast away from you, underline this, all the transgressions that you have committed. And listen to this. Make yourselves a new heart and a new spirit. While will you die, O house of Israel? Have no pleasure in the death of anyone, declares the Lord. Turn and live. I don't know about you. I read that and I scratch my head and I go, um, God, I don't think I can do that. <laughs> Make myself a new heart? That, that's, not, that's not happening. Again, the same idea. The verse is communicating impossibility. No one can make themselves a new heart. This was supposed to show every person back in the Old Testament, back with Nicodemus, with this rich young ruler, that there was no hope in ourselves, no hope in finding life in ourselves or fixing it on our own. It was out of reach. It's like that jar on the top shelf to a toddler. Like, I can't get the cookies out of the jar. They're way up there. Like, I just can't reach it. It's not happening. They were supposed to keep reading because listen to how Ezekiel continues. This is so good. Ezekiel 36. Verse 24, I will take you, notice the I wills in this passage, I will take you from the nations, gather you from all your countries, and, and the, the language here is I will, I will bring you into your own land, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness and from all your idols, I will cleanse you, I will give you what? 
a new heart. The previous verse said, make yourself a new heart. The point was, keep reading. You can't do it, but God says, I'll give you one. <laughs> I'll give you a new heart and, I, and, and a new spirit I will put within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh, and I will give you a heart of flesh. I will transform you. I will change you. I, I will do it. You say, but how in the world is that possible? How, how does that happen? And the answer is to understand in all this story that we ourselves, we all needed and need a rich young ruler like this guy in some ways to give up everything to save us, to sell all that he had to reach us. And we do. You know what it is? It's actually Jesus. He gave up the glories of heaven, the worship of endless angels, the delight of communion with the Father. He literally had everything. He went into, we could say, poverty deeper than anyone has ever known. He truly had everything. He who truly had everything gave it all up to reach us and save us. And as the story goes on, as the gospel continues, we find that he, he was put into a grave. In a cold, dark grave there, we have, we have Satan, we have sin, we have death, we have hell itself, as it were, standing on the tomb, pushing back the rock. And we have that great third day that Jesus blew past that rock, right? Rose again, resurrection, came through, and he burst it out with, with, with life. And now he has dispatched the spirit as that divine interferer to come in and to waken us to that story. And he's telling us that Jesus gave it all up for us. He lived, died, rose again, and in him alone is life. And so the question that this guy asked at the very beginning, the question of, quote, what, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? My friends, it's the wrong question. It's the wrong question in life. What should be asked is, what, what good deed did Jesus do that I may have eternal life, right? It's all about him and what he's done for us. It's what the whole Bible is about. He calls us just to lay it down. He calls us to follow him, right? Listen to Hebrews 12 tells us, since we are surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight, sin which clings so closely. Let us run with endurance and race set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross Despising the shame, see at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endure from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. Here we find Jesus, the founder, the perfecter of our faith. He planned it, he executed it. He entered our race, all right? He pushed through the wall like a champion, and he won the victory for us. And as the old hymn goes, it goes, lay your deadly doing down, down at Jesus' feet, and stand in him, in him alone, wondrously complete. He'll transform you. He'll take the heart of stone and he'll make it a heart of flesh, right? Listen, we, we think much like the disciples, don't we? Peter's question at the end here says, <laughs> and, and this is a normal question. Peter goes, um, okay, so then what's in it for us? <laughs> what are we gonna have, right? We, we ask this question. And I love Jesus doesn't rebuke him and go, Peter, you're being selfish, man. Doesn't do that. He actually tells him, you, you, you receive far more than you ever give up. He talks about here this, this new earth and, and, a, and a heaven. He talks about the, even the current benefits of a new family of God, uh, uh, the, the, the status of being a child of God. All that changes. My friends, God is the ultimate interferer. And for some of you, where you are right now, and I remember this feeling, you may feel like God's like a nuisance. You're like, you just get off my back. Would you just... You just leave me alone. I remember sitting in my bed, my fist in the air going, would you just leave me alone? If you're here, if you exist, like go away because you're making my life miserable, right? I look back now and go, thank God he interfered with my life. 
thank God he stepped into what I didn't want him to do and broke down that wall of my soul. I love how C.S. Lewis again put it this way. He says, God whispers to us in our pleasures. He speaks to us in our conscience, but he shouts in our pains. It's his megaphone to arouse a deaf world. 2020 was loud. 2021 seems like it's getting louder, okay? It's a, lot, it's, a lot, it's a big megaphone. I believe God is up to something. And I believe he's awakening people and he's, he's stripping away everything that we could possibly lean our lives on or find our treasure in to point us to himself. He's pulling away things we hope in, idols we cherish. They, and they may be health, right? He's pulling that one away. Prosperity, comfort, ease, even the longing that we may have for an ideal world and country. Stripping it all away. It's all being pulled apart. Why? It's his megaphone. He's screaming. Do you hear him? Okay. He's yelling at you. He's, he's, he's interfering. Yes. And I know it feels like an annoyance, but he's actually doing this to draw us to himself and people to himself. I'd invite you to lay things down at Jesus' feet. As we go to communion, and if you're a follower of Christ, it's an opportunity to evaluate. God, ask the question, what idols are in my heart? Because I don't, I don't know. What am I leaning on for life? What is more important to me than you? God, can you show me that? Can you reveal that to me? Remember, it's usually a good thing that we make into an ultimate thing to replace God with, okay? So consider that. Think about that. Pray about that. Find rest for your souls. As Jesus says, come to me, all you weary and heavy laden, I'll give you rest. Those little cups there in the, in the pews in front of you, this bread, this juice, if you're a follower of Christ, as we have some quiet time to reflect and pray, do that in, in remembrance of what he did the life he gave for you. He lived the life we could not live, died to death we should have died to save us, okay? Take some time to evaluate, lay things down before God, confess the sin if you need to. If you're, if you're not ready, then don't take it. If you're not a follower of Christ, we'd love to answer your questions. Come see us, we'll be in the back. I would love to do that. Let me end with one quote and then we'll pray. James K. Smith, his uh, biography he wrote about uh, Augustine, he said this, he says, if the road has beat you down, if the sights have become predictable and tired, and there are nights that you look at your friends in the car and you wonder, what are we doing? Just Please just let me out. If you're weary from the chase, broken by the journey, tired of disappointment, unsettled, then you need to find some rest, not in accomplishments, but in welcome. And today, Jesus welcomes you. Come to me, he says, all you will weary and heavy laden, I will give you what? rest. Consider that. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the opportunity to reflect on you. Um, thank you for this plan that you've laid out. Thank you for, for the reality that's laid out. This isn't just a story. This is history. This is, this is things that took place 2,000 years ago for the sake of us today. That God, we would we so easily, even us who are followers of Christ, so easily wander off into treasuring, valuing things that are good, good gifts that you've given to us. It could be possessions. It could be people. I mean, it could be anything that we so desperately want to have that's maybe a good thing that we've made an ultimate thing. And God, it's tearing at our soul. It's tearing at our relationships with others. It's tearing us apart. I pray, God, that you would remove whatever idols are in our souls, our hearts, that you would place yourself on that throne and reveal your glory, value, and worth that, God, you are so much better than whatever this world has to offer. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.